David Kaylee McEnany claimed today that Supreme Court nominee Amy Coney Barrett was a Rhodes Scholar. In fact, Amy Coney Barrett went to Rhodes College in Memphis. What I want to know is, as graduates of Big 12 schools, <laughs> oh no, should we be offended or should oh. we just go ahead and take the populist line on this one? Oh my God. I think you just got yourself kicked out of the Alumni Association. Um, <laughs> I, I, I mean... I do not the sort of person that says this sort of thing a lot, but I think we can save our outrage for more important matters, especially mm-hmm. when it comes to Kaylee McEnany and and her uh, her her half truths um, or mis mistru- untruths or, or or whatever else. I, I I find it hard to get a uh, to. First of all, I actually think that's a mistake that someone might make, but uh, you know, someone who didn't spend time doing their job, I guess. But. Um, but yeah, I mean, and if it's deliberate, it's actually kind of hilarious. I mean, I don't know that she meant it to be funny, but it's, it's kind of funny. You think she was just handed a piece of paper where the S in scholar was lowercase? So she technically <laughs> is a Rhodes Scholar? Do you think she was actually, she was very deliberately, she made the choice deliberately to say that and knew that she was misrepresenting the facts, but thought in that moment well i'm well, technically i'm correct no one can see if i'm capitalizing when it's me speaking do you think that's what she was <laughs> do you think that was her thought process uh that that implies a lot of sophistication that i'm not sure is happening in the trump white house i agree with you i i agree anyway i have absolutely no time for college grandstanding in my life ut <laughs> and uh I really don't. And just because I went to an elite public university, I'm not going to sit here and say that because I saw Ricky Williams win the Heisman Trophy in 1998. I'm not going to brag about that because I saw Vince Young win the national championship in 2005. (laughs) Why brag about that? Come on, people. Have some respect. It's time for the Press Box, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on, I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, Tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Hello, media consumers. Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker of The Ringer here with a big show for you today. We'll answer your listener mail including the question, which cardboard cutouts should be put in the audience at a presidential debate? Plus, Texas Monthly legend Skip Hollinsworth stops by to talk about his new true crime podcast, Tom Brown's Body. All that plus David Shoemaker guesses a strain pun headline and the overworked Twitter joke of the week. But first, David, I want you to listen to some audio. 
This is the sound of a news anchor with a broken heart. I have to speak personally here as somebody who's watched presidential debates for 40 years, as somebody who's moderated presidential debates, as someone who's prepared candidates for presidential debates, as someone who's covered presidential debates. That was the worst presidential debate I have ever seen uh, in my life. A lot more heat than light over some 98 minutes. David, have you ever heard George Stephanopoulos like that before? I have to say, as someone who's commented on a lot of uh, media <laughs> figures uh, making public statements, that was uh, that was the saddest uh, media figure making a public statement I've I've ever heard. Oh, oh, but wait, because as we talk debate fallout here, I want to start with a contest for which news anchor best emoted their disappointment after the bonkers debate we heard on Tuesday night. Now, as you know, news anchors <laughs> are self-styled nonpartisan creatures. So they, they really can't come down on the side of one party or the other. But the thing they can all go in on, David, is when a democratic tradition is defiled. Oh, yes. In the way Trump defiled Tuesday's debate. Okay, so that was George Stephanopoulos on the ABC News postgam. Our second disappointed anchor contestant is CNN's Jake Tapper. Wolf, that was a hot mess inside a dumpster fire inside a train wreck. That was the worst debate I have ever seen. In fact, it wasn't even a debate. It was a disgrace. Not a debate, David. A disgrace. Yeah, okay. If we're, if we're going to go with D words here, aren't they? Aren't all of these responses, I mean, they're not inaccurate, but aren't they doing an incredible disservice to the actual content of what was on the debate? And I don't mean specifically that we should address the policy issues or the points of uh, disagreement between the candidates, but like it was a, it was the worst debate George Stephanopoulos had ever seen. It was a dumpster fire to Jake Tapper because of President Trump, not because of the mm -hmm. debate format or because of uh, Vice President Biden. Uh, it, it it was a mess because of one element in the debate, and yet none of them. Well, I mean, obviously they, some of them went on to say uh, more specifically, but. I see over and over again people saying just saying this debate was the worst ever. You see it on Twitter. You see everybody saying this, but like, and then and then a lot of these journalists will go immediately will segue immediately into some commentary about how voters are turned off. Voters are turned off because this our president is a, is acting like a fool, and the commentary from the media class is, oh, the the thing that he was a part of was just bad. <laughs> am I am I am I am I dwelling too much on this? No. I mean, it feels like it echoes back to four years ago when people were were kind of bending over backwards to point out how the media was not criticizing Trump sufficiently, right? By doing a kind of this and that, either you know both sides sort of thing. But but I really feel like that the response to this debate has been just remarkably unspecific because there's a very specific problem with it. Jake Tapper got there. Yeah. Though he did use the phrase, the American people lost tonight. Yes. Which is kind of my favorite generic debate analysis. You know who the real losers were tonight, David? The American people. <laughs> Just got kind of, That is like your basic unit of debate analysis after something like what happened on Tuesday night. Yeah. And probably good. And probably good for every debate, right? Yeah. But I mean, it's like, it's like if something, I mean, it would have been, it would have been like, who, who did the, what was the famous, I'm sorry, I'm going like really our ancient sports here. What was the Joe Buck call that the touchdown tell? Was it Randy Moss pretending yes, to uh, drop his drop trow in the end zone? That would have been, I mean, is if, I mean, Joe Buck's response at that moment was basically the football audience, the American people have lost because of that celebration right there. But no, the appropriate response is look at that idiot. 
right? I mean, if you if you disapprove of it, the response is, "Look at that idiot!" Not the American people have suffered because of what just happened in the end zone, and that. And I feel like we're getting a lot of the American people right now. On the very same roundtable as Tapper, there was CNN's Dana Bash. Listen to how she summed up the debate. Um, you use some high-minded language. I'm just going to say it like it is. That was a shit show. And, you know, we're on cable. We can say that. Apologies for being um, maybe a little bit crude. But that is really the, the phrase that I'm getting, more, you know, from people on both sides of the aisle on text. And it's the only phrase that I can think of to really describe it. Um, kudos. <laughs> kudos to Ms. Bash for, for getting shit show past the censors. But, uh, um, but again... Our president was a shit show. The rest of the debate just suffered by proximity, by being proximate to him. It really is striking when news anchors cuss. <laughs> <laughs> it's, well, it's funny, right? I mean, it's like that's half of the jokes in like Anchorman. Like just the cussing and it, cussing from that position of authority is just inherently funny. Yeah. Yeah. They've taken it up a notch. It's like when Biden calls the president a clown. Mm -hmm. That's meant to just make you just sort of screech, do a tire screech and go, whoa, what just happened? <laughs> but when somebody on CNN uses the word shit show, you're like, oh, <laughs> we're taking it up a notch here. <laughs> also from CNN, David, and God, what a night of head shaking it was on CNN. We have Anderson Cooper. I don't think we've ever seen a president of the United States completely lacking in shame. I mean, just shameless and obesely immoral. I mean, th there's not a moral fiber in this man. Obesely immoral. Now, do you mm -hmm. think Anderson Cooper just happened to land on that adjective? No. All great literature um, employs <laughs> such sort of double entendres. <laughs> that, was, that was good. I mean, listen, at least he... he that was he, about he, Trump. Yeah, no, at least he pointed to Trump, right? I mean, at least he called, he, 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 he was accurate uh, in, in his expression of disgust. I was going to call it right there, but we had a late entrant right before we came on the air. Oh, Fox News is John Roberts today asked Kaylee McEnany at the White House to denounce white supremacy. She did not, especially directly anyway. So here's Roberts on the air a few minutes later on Fox News. And for all of you on Twitter who were hammering me for answering that quite for asking that question, I don't care. Because it's a question that needs to be asked, and clearly the president's Republican colleagues a mile away from here are looking for an answer for it, too. So stop deflecting. Stop okay. blaming the media. I'm tired of it. All right. John, Rob that, John Roberts is tired of it, so we're going to let you go. Thank you, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> what a dismount there by the Fox News anchor. Oh my gosh. I think like if if everybody that popped up on any cable news channel just like prefaced what they were about to say by and all you people on Twitter who are and then just like go into the replies. <laughs> that was a that was that was basically like he should have just said, you know, something mean gene to start that off. That was fantastic. I also wanted to talk to you, David, about moderator Chris Wallace. Ooh. Who had a very interesting night on Tuesday night. He did an mm -hmm. interview with the New York Times' Michael Grinbaum. And by the way, this was my favorite news anchory moment to the point you just made. Wallace couldn't quite come out and admit that it was Trump's fault. This is Grinbaum writing, asking directly if Mr. Trump had derailed the debate. Mr. Wallace replied, well, he certainly didn't help. <laughs> Chris, I don't know if you know this, but the debate was on TV. We we saw you we saw you lecturing Trump 
So, so he didn't help. You, you can go <laughs> ahead and say that Trump derailed the debate. <laughs> I don't know. I've been thinking about his performance for the last day and a half. You and I yeah. touched on it a little bit Tuesday night. I'm still not convinced that he did a terrible job. Given the fact that he was dealing with the debate monster and a guy who just had no interest in abiding by any of the rules, letting anybody else talk, and was determined to interrupt. Where where are you falling on Wallace? I think I think I'm a, I think he's actually said the words he did a good job and you corrected me. He did a fine job. I, and I'm, clo- I'm I'm fully in the fine camp or fine at best camp right now. I, and I also said that that he was that if it hadn't been if this had been a conventional debate but the questions were had been the same, I think we'd have a lot to object to just in the content. Um uh, the sort of partisan leanings of some of his questions. And there's probably, there was more of that than I noticed even in the, in, in real time. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think there's lots of things to take exception to, but in terms of just refereeing, um, I don't know what else he could have done. I mean, he, like, I, I don't know. I, I, I just, I, I kept thinking that certainly he was prepared for it to go off the rails. He, he was hoping that it wasn't, he might say he wasn't prepared for it to be, to, to go the way it did, but he acquitted himself well, I, I mean, I guess your mileage may vary. He he acquitted himself something. He was he seemed capable of functioning in a moment where a lot of people would probably just be crawling under their desk out of embarrassment or anxiety or fear. Um, so you know, I think that given, I mean, in terms of refereeing, I, I I find it hard to imagine someone else doing better unless it was just someone that had that had Trump's ear in a way that Wallace obviously didn't. I mean, I, 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 I don't know. I think resistance Twitter probably would have loved Chris Wallace to stand up and say, Mr. President, you're being an asshole. That is not going to happen during a presidential debate or any television appearance involving the president of the United States. So if we, if we, if we go ahead and mandate that, what I think Wallace did so effectively was he was able to, by fighting back, fighting back, fighting back, constantly telling Trump that he was interrupting, to basically underline it three times to the American people that Trump was being an asshole without saying it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important because you're absolutely right. It's very easy for this to slide into, oh, this was a crazy debate and everyone was yelling at each other versus the correct interpretation, which is Trump hijacked the debate. But you notice in almost all his comments, Wallace made them directly to Trump, right? Mm -hmm. He appealed directly to Trump between segments. You need to stop interrupting me. You have to, you have to abide by the rules of the debate. Look, that is not going to be like super heroic or super charming, but I think again, within the confines of what you could actually do from that seat, I think he sort of communicated to America that Trump was being an asshole. Yeah, I mean, there were also a lot of people, even on television. I mean, there were talking heads, people who I'm sure know the details of the debate format better than I do, who were who were maintaining on debate night that they should have cut Trump's microphone at various times. I I, I just assume that that is, if that were even remotely feasible, they would have been prepared to do it. But also, the reaction would have been just so dramatic to that, right? I mean, to just oh. uh, without without warning, without pretense just to like start cutting the president's mic i mean you saw the 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 trump campaign has been publicizing the fact that chris wallace cut off trump however 60 whatever times as opposed to the the you know low double Mm -hmm. digit that he that he did biden i mean if you saw the debate that you would say yes that's exactly what happened because trump was just 
being a jerk the entire time. That, that doesn't that shouldn't reflect well on the president. But it, but they spin it really easily into a uh, anti media whatever media bias talking point. And I don't know what else you can do without making. I mean, if that if the talking point were valid, I think it would have or, or even a little bit more valid. It would have so much more science, and it was, and, and so much, and, and it would, I think, have a lot, much bigger effect on people's perception of what happened. I saw a self-described conservative warrior named Wayne Allen Root on Twitter tweet this: "Wallace destroyed Trump's train of thought while saving Biden again and again. He, it was, it was Wallace destroying Trump's train of thought, not oh Trump God. clearly trying on purpose to destroy Joe Biden's train of thought." Okay. And this was former Pennsylvania Senator Rick Santorum, truly one of the saddest people on cable news, if not of all of planet Earth. He thought Wallace asked some tricky questions. I, I would say the Democrats owe a lot to Chris Wallace because Chris Wallace asked those two questions, not Joe Biden. It was Chris Wallace who asked those two yes, questions. He and, he asked, and he asked him for a reason, because he asked two questions where he was asking the president to do something that he knows the president doesn't like to do. Which is? Which is, say something bad about people who support him, right? What, declining and, violence? Yeah, well, well, talking about... The, the white supremacy? supremacy? Yeah, the white supremacist, number one. And number two, uh, asking... Yeah, so the, the, the Chris Wallace asked Trump some very canny questions about, do you support white supremacy? <laughs> yes, that was... He really put him in the corner. Thank you, Senator Santorum, for that insight. It's just a quick, a quick point of order. Wayne Allen Root was a candidate for the Libertarian presidential nomination in 08, and I think was their nominee for vice president before leaving the party and going back to uh, <laughs> and going back to the Republican side. And if I remember correctly, he's also he also was a he was a Columbia student at the same time Obama was, or something, and, and has implied that Obama never was there. So, so it's <laughs> so that's who we're dealing with right now. So at some point he changed his business card to conservative warrior and started yes. going in this direction. Yes. Well, you know, I mean, that's, he, I think he just kind of follows the, uh, the, the tea party of Trumpism train with a lot of the rest of America. Finally, can we spend a second on the conspiracy theories that oh, popped yes. up around this debate? You and I were going to talk about this Tuesday night and the debate just threw us so much that we didn't even get to it. We talked about Trump's PED conspiracy that came out before the debate that Joe Biden was using drugs to sort of perk up for the debate. Then there was one that Biden was receiving cues during the debate via a secret earpiece. <laughs> that went viral earlier this week. Turns out that theory has been around since at least 2000. Yes. I did not remember the 2000 version when Rush Limbaugh said Al Gore was getting answers to the earpiece. I, just I didn't remember that either, no. I, I remember the George W. one in 2004. Oh, yes. Dude, very I mean, much. I definitely got some like email chain forwards <laughs> when is <laughs> that, the media going to do something about this? this is before my career was involved photoshop but i probably would have been the person throwing those photos into stark contrast and adjusting the levels like crazy in photoshop if, if that had happened <laughs> during my time um i also i mean it's also just hilarious to look at the one i mean the, the ones from this debate uh and and see how like easily how clearly photoshopped some of them are but i guess that's all kind of beside the point right i mean this this is a conspiracy theory that comes up literally every cycle. The important difference here is in 2004, it was an email forward. In 2020, the Trump campaign is the email forward. Tim Murtaugh, Trump campaign's communications director, said in a statement that Biden had agreed to an ear inspection and later backed out. 
The Biden campaign has said that this is bullshit. The Trump team also launched an ad campaign after the debates that asked, why won't Sleepy Joe commit to an ear test? Who's in <laughs> Joe's ear? Uh, the ads, the BBC reports, have reached, get ready, more than 10 million people via Facebook. It is interesting that, I mean, maybe it's because Facebook is a thing and ad, and, and the campaigns could have, have kind of have to take responsibility for whatever they put out there. Um, I'm not sure that kind of transparency is a net positive, but it is interesting that, I mean, you said the campaign is the email forward. Um, you know, we had, you know, Sean Hannity was on TV prior to the debate talking about Joe Biden being on drugs, right? And there was a great article, I don't know if it was in the Times or where, that tracked the earpiece conspiracy theory basically from like one uh, anonymously sourced tweet that was later sort of retracted or corrected uh, and how that sort of climbed its way very, very deliberately, you know, up the republic or the, the the conservative media ranks until it could, you know, be a mainstream talking point. But yeah, I mean, f even four years ago, four years ago, the Trump campaign was dependent on like, like Twitter lowlifes like Mike Cernovich to pass around the Hillary Clinton is sick nonsense, right? And then maybe like after some amount of per like permeation, then. The Drudge Report would just have like a snarky headline that no one quite understood unless you'd been following this thing on dark on the dark web or whatever. And 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 even you know you go back further and this is the kind of stuff that you would a campaign would seed. You know, it's like when the Bush campaign like would put out or the supposedly put out those flyers about John McCain parenting you know kids out of wedlock or whatever. It's like this was this is the the secretive the part about the, the part of campaign that we don't admit to. And for the and Trump in in twenty twenty, this is just like you know par for the course. I mean, they're they're very, they're open about it. Yeah, so we're QAnon supporters, David. I know this is going to shock you because oh, no. they saw something on Biden's wrist, which they <laughs> claimed was some kind of communication device. Apparently, mm -hmm. Biden is like on Star Trek, you know, where you speak into mm -hmm. your the device in your hand to talk to the ship. Um, turns out that is actually a rosary that Biden wears to honor his late son Bo. So that's a miss on that one too. Wow. <laughs> it's always good if you're going to do a conspiracy to then insult the candidate. <laughs> By the way, programming note, David, next Wednesday, October 7th, is the vice presidential debate between Mike Pence and Kamala Harris. We will have an instant reaction episode here at the Press Box. And maybe this time, David and I won't have our jaws on the floor and can actually get through this without losing our minds. All right. It's time for the overworked Twitter joke of the week where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Send your nominees to at the press box pod where they are always gratefully received. David, one of the revelations in that amazing New York times report about Trump's taxes, Trump must pay back $300 million in loans and has a business debt load of more than $1 billion. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write. Trump can no longer afford to own the libs. Thanks to <laughs> Leah Cassidy Fletcher and Ryan Snyder. In trying to describe the debate, David, a lot of people landed on the same word as CNN's Dana Bash. It was an overworked Twitter joke for your publication style guide to tweet, shit show is one word. Thanks to Michael Saul Warren for that. And finally, did you see the bit where Hollywood people were comparing the debate disaster to their own career disasters? Oh, yeah. Star Wars's Mark Hamill tweets, that debate was the worst thing I've ever seen, and I was in the Star Wars holiday special. Screenwriter Jeremy Slater, that was the worst thing I've ever seen, and I wrote Fantastic Four. Screenwriter Alec Berg, it was the worst thing I've ever seen, and I wrote the Cat in the Hat movie. And finally, screenwriter Eric Champnella, 
That's the worst thing I've ever seen. And I wrote the movie Eddie, which had a cameo by Trump. Top that motherfuckers. <laughs> Thanks to Sugar Lemon. If you use Tuesday's debate to purge your own Hollywood payday, congrats. You made the overworked Twitter joke of the week. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use gift mode. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. In the notebook dump, David, let's do some listener mail. We do this every Thursday. Remember when we talked the other day about the Press Box Listener Challenge? A listener had to get something mentioned on the show in the overworked Twitter joke of the week, the strain pun headline, and now oh, a yeah. listener mail. Of course. All right. Our pal Hugh Hopkins has a new challenge. If you're a journalist, your challenge is to make a reference to the press box in your copy. <laughs> <laughs> Hugh Hopkins has done this. In an article for Sky Sports, he wrote about the WNBA's Alyssa Thomas. He writes, there has been an overworked joke on WNBA Twitter that expresses shock anytime a broadcast commentary team references Alyssa Thomas's two torn labrums. This is this appeared in print. <laughs> We're calling this the hue now, by the way. If you get if you get something in. Oh my congrats. god. This might this might be a one-time only sort of thing. I'm I don't want to be responsible for getting somebody fired for putting in like no. like backmasking into their pro, pro press press box subliminal messages into their uh, into their copy. Yeah, there aren't enough jobs out there right now, but if you feel secure in your position, <laughs> feel free to follow Hugh Hopkins into the abyss and, and work in a press box reference. Thank you so much, Hugh. This is from Steve Holzapfel. Who would be your ideal debate moderator, character or actual person uh. if the next debate is like the last one? I'm voting Stone Cold Steve Austin, but could also be talked into Gordon Ramsay. Ooh. Well, I'm sure it's kind of separate from the way he posed the question, but Stone Cold Steve Austin has found a sort of second life as an incredibly, incredibly smart and quick-witted podcast host. Like, he, he is really, really good. <laughs> um, and and uh, that I would definitely put him up there, both for, you know, his on-screen shenanigans and his uh, ability as a questioner. Um, I don't know. I mean, who, who, who would you pick, Brian? Don't we feel like we have this incredible surplus in the world right now of mean hosts? Like mm -hmm. we we've got the two just mentioned. We've got Simon Cowell, right? We've got people like I I, I think um, what's his name? Piers Morgan is probably going to be a little too pro Trump, but we have people who play that role on TV. Wait, right? I thought I'm, Piers I'm, Morgan was anti Trump. But did he did he turn? I thought he and Trump have like long standing issues. But I could I could be I, I might be totally yeah. I, I'm gonna I'm just gonna go ahead and say this. I don't care enough to look this up about <laughs> Piers Morgan. But there are people like that. Let's go with Stone Cold. Uh, unless we come up with something better. But what, anyway. Wait, wait, wait. What about? I mean, I, I don't. This this isn't. This is only halfway serious, so it's probably not a good answer in either direction. But what about like a slightly older, matured Howard Stern? Would we not? Okay. Would, don't, don't you think Howard would do a fine job at this point? <laughs> sure. Yeah. <laughs> and he fits that broad category, yeah, right? Exactly. Yeah. He's seen weirder for sure than that presidential debate. 
This one was from listeners Baptist America and Matthew. You're made the editor of the New York Times. What is your headline the morning after the debate? Okay. Can we start by reading the actual headline of the print New York Times? Yeah, please on do. Wednesday? So I'm expecting some kind of on the one hand, on the other hand, you know, debate. This was their actual headline on the front page. Trump's heckles send first debate into utter chaos. That's not bad. I don't know if no, I love the word not heckles. Bad. It's not like yeah, Joe Biden was a comedian. It doesn't feel exactly accurate, but I'm sure it is. Yeah, and I think they're there. There, you feel a little bit like they're looking for a safish word, right? Mm-hmm. Heckles is is kind of like feels a little more jovial than what Trump was doing, but that's not bad at all. No, it's not. It feels like they it feels like they they spent all of their capital on chaos and then had to figure out a very nice word to use for the other thing. I, I yeah, I think. But you're right. It's fine. It's 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 actually it's it's not as kind of much of a misdirection as you might expect. I love this question from Rick Delaney. Would cardboard cutouts of people work better for the candidates in the debates? If so, who would each candidate want to see smiling back at them? Pope Francis for Biden? Uh, Duarte for Trump? So this is a fan- fascinating question. And, and this is the way I would put it. I would ask each of the two candidates to pick the cardboard cutouts. I was going to say exactly the same thing. Right? Yeah. And wouldn't it be revealing? First of all, we could do Biden's right now. John Lewis, FDR, somebody from Delaware, we don't know, um, Obama, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we could just pick oh, John McCain for sure. 1000% he has John McCain cardboard cutout in the audience. Yeah. Trump's could be literally anything. Like, who do you think Donald Trump puts in cardboard form looking back at him in the audience? Oh, man, that's a great question. I mean, do you think there's any like like TV or movie characters that would make the cut? <laughs> Didn't he love Steven Seagal? Wasn't that a thing? <laughs> In one of the biographers that he was watching the same Steven Seagal movie over and over again. Oh my God. I'm sure that's Mike Tyson. True. Oh yeah. I think he's a big fan of Shark Week, right? I mean, I don't really know if you can put sharks in the audience, but I have no, I have no idea. You probably just put cardboard, r- r- like the cardboard cutouts of his kids over and over again, just like 15 of each of them. I don't know, dude. I, I think, I think there'd be at least one kid left out <laughs> in exchange for a celebrity. I really do. I think it'd be fascinating. I think this needs to happen with the second debate. This is from Nick field. What should we make of the fact that despite the conventional wisdom, viewers did not turn the debate off, but stuck with it. This is true. First of all, the debate had 73 million viewers. Just for comparison, the Emmys, which you might have seen your friends tweeting about, had 6 million viewers. 73 million viewers is a huge, huge television audience in 2020. What Nick is specifically referring to is the debate did not lose viewership as it went along. Its rating near the end was about the same as its rating at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. 10.30 Eastern time ratings, in fact, were slightly higher than the ratings at 9 p.m. I don't know about you, Dave, but I saw a whole lot of people on Twitter, including friends of ours, saying, I just had to walk out. I couldn't watch that. Yeah. I turned it off, or I'm so glad I don't have to watch political debates. Were those people telling the truth? Well, probably not. I mean, not all of them. I mean, I also saw a lot of people who were just a lot of uh, like Twitter commentary with the, with, where people made the assumption that the casual viewer tuned out after 15 minutes the, mm-hmm. you know the, like the, the you know the average average joe just must have gotten turned off by it and obviously that wasn't true um i i mean i, I don't want to you know make too big of a deal of it but 
I think most of the people that tuned in were committed to watching it. And there might have been people who were tuned in who, who you know, were every bit as engaged as, you know, I think, well, who were very engaged by what went on for better or worse. I think we can even be simpler than that. People like train wrecks. Yeah. If the president is yelling at the moderator and yelling at the other candidate, you're going to turn off the television. Yeah. If now somebody is a millennial that is like post TV, I totally believe that you didn't watch it. I, I just totally, and I'm looking at Chris Almeida right now. I, I totally believe that you could have consumed it in some way that an old man like me doesn't understand. But of the TV generation like me and David, what yeah. else were you doing Tuesday night? I, I kind of don't believe that you weren't watching the debate. Mm-hmm. I really don't. And 73 million people. So a lot of people were watching the debate. Finally, this one for Maddie Wasserman has a good question about reporting. Is there any answer an interviewer dreads more than I actually get that question a lot? um no absolutely well i mean listen about half the interviews i mean you'll do are kind of service interviews right i mean like if if i if if you interview a well i mean a lot of the people that you interview aren't being interviewed all the time they're people who usually do the interviewing but you know if a writer comes on to promote their new book, then part of what you do is kind of get at the same, you know, basic questions about it over and over again. So I'm sure there's a lot of questions that you hear, that the people hear a lot that are still fine to ask. But no, I mean, when you're not expecting it or when, it, you know, when that's not the answer you're going for, that is a heartbreaking thing to hear because, uh, you know, you want to be you, you, you spend a lot of time trying to be original when, when you're when you're cooking up your questions. You know, the thing I have found in almost every interview is when your interview subject says that's a good question. They don't mm-hmm. actually mean that it's a good question. They mean that they don't know the answer immediately off the top of their head. Oh, OK. And that's what they're saying to buy themselves time. Huh. So if you say something, I say, you know, David, that's a really good question. What I'm doing is just treading water right there. Giving yeah. my brain a chance to click in. It may, it might mean I've never heard that question before, but it's not necessarily a good question. Uh, doesn't it feel like the great question, subtle, subtle shift, isn't, isn't great question the reverse of that? Great question is like, I know the great question is the preface to, I am immensely prepared to answer that question. One billion percent. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you know who asks great questions, David? Texas who? Monthly Reporter Skip Hollinsworth. Oh, yeah. Segway. See if you can hear the fanboydom in my voice when I talk to Skip about his new true crime podcast. Texas Monthly Skip Hollinsworth once told me, Brian, I'm writing one of my trashy murder stories. And when you put out a collection, Skip, that absolutely needs to be the title. Hollinsworth is one of my very favorite writers on the planet. In more than three decades at Texas Monthly, he has perfected the magazine murder story, and now he's doing the same thing as a podcast. This week, Texas Monthly released a new multi-part story called Tom Brown's Body, and Skip's here to talk about what it's like to report on a killing in both word and audio form. Skip, thanks for coming on the Press Box. Thank you, Mr. Curtis. (laughs) Let's start with the story itself. Who was Tom Brown? Well, uh, you know, sitting in my house in Dallas, I tend to look at newspaper websites and just look for stuff that might be of interest in one of the thousands of small towns that are in the state. And I kept reading for the last two or three years about this weird investigation that never seemed to end in the town of Canadian, which is a town of 2,700 people east of Amarillo. 
And it was about the president of the senior class, the most popular boy in town, played on the football team. They had won the state championship for two years in a row, which is a big deal. And um, just an all-around good guy, got around, got along with everyone, the football players, the ranch boys, the drama nerds, everybody. And he went cruising one for, on one night before Thanksgiving when everybody was, didn't have school the next day and went cruising with some buddies, said goodbye to him, and vanished. And that was in November 2016. And since then, there have been like four law enforcement agencies that have investigated the case. There have been rumors that have gone from everything that he was ground up in a wood chipper to uh, he ran away and is living in North Carolina or California or Colorado. And it just kept going on and on and on. Been something about his mother was involved in the in his disappearance. Something about his brother was involved in his disappearance. Something about the sheriff was a suspect in his disappearance. And finally, his remains were found under a cottonwood tree east of town two years after he disappeared. And that only led to more questions about what happened to this case and what was he murdered? Did he accidentally die? Did he commit suicide? What happened? So me being the narcissist that I am, as this case has been covered for three or four years, I decided to go to Canadian and figure it out that I, Skip Hollingsworth, would come up with the answer. Because as I say in the podcast, a mystery can't always remain a mystery, right? I mean, isn't that what we're always told? Right. Sure. Now, you've parachuted into many a small town to do stories like this. I think of uh, the one that became the basis of the Richard Linklater movie, Bernie. How do you drop into a town like Canadian? Uh, you get on an airplane. <laughs> okay. <laughs> fly to Amarillo, you drive to Canadian, you show up. And I had, you know, I was not, I'm not the modern podcaster. I'm not a guy who brings along a producer with a boom mic, but standing behind me wearing a backpack full of all kinds of electronic gear and batteries and so on. I just use my iPhone to do mm -hmm. the entire podcast. And I would just show up at people's offices. I mean, small towns are still small towns. You don't always have to have an appointment. And, you know, the first guy I went to see was the richest man in town, Salem Abraham, who out of this little tiny town runs a hedge fund that at one point had $600 million in assets. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, here's this man that has multimillionaires calling him during our interview. The, the light is always blinking on his phone. And he's so obsessed with Tom Brown's disappearance and whether he'd been murdered and that I had shown up to talk to him about it, that he basically pushed everything off his desk and talked to me for two hours while the stock market was open. <laughs> and um, then I went over and, of course, saw the editor of the local paper who was a woman who is, you know, feisty and funny and trying to stay afloat in business, even though all local weekly newspapers are disappearing. And she's been obsessed with the case. For, she's been writing about the case for four years. And, you know, then I went and saw that the mom of the boy disappeared and everybody treated me like family. <laughs> it's not hard to do. Now, you've got to get people to talk to you to treat you like family, to do a story like this. Did introducing the idea that this would be a podcast versus a written piece change those interactions at all? Yes. They were as terrified of podcasts as I used to be and probably still am. I mean, you know, the, 
there had been, you know, they had heard podcasts before, but they didn't really know what it meant. I talked to the sheriff. He goes, I'm not going to be on any podcast. And by t- last week, he was saying things like, uh, hey, can you call me? We need to record some new audio about something I just thought about. <laughs> You've made them into audio professionals. This is incredible. <laughs> now, I was listening to your first episode, and it strikes me that when you do this in podcast form, that Skip Hollinsworth almost has to be a character. And your reporting process sort of has to be part of the plot, just to explain this to people. How comfortable were you with that? Completely, because it was about me. Completely comfortable. Uh, I actually like podcasts best that where you follow the journey through the eyes of the reporter and how the reporter finds things out. And, you know, like a lot of people who've tried this, I'm influenced by the serial podcast and uh, by others where you see someone fish out of water, come into a uh, town or into a location and try to find something out. And uh, that was a lot of, you know, I thought, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to do a podcast. I just want to do my usual old trashy true crime stories. And I realized that it's more interesting. This is sacrilege for me to say, but it's more interesting listening to someone talk to me than reading about someone talking to me. Hmm. And why is that? Just the sound of their voice? Sound of their voice, the inflection, you know, the way their tone changes, the silences, all that drama. In in writing, you know, when you write a story, you have to say, he paused, and then he finally said. Well, in a podcast, you let him pause, and finally he says what he's going to say. So you don't have to use those stupid lines that we all use in magazine stories. He, He rested his chin against his hand. He thought for a moment and then he said, well, you don't have to do that anymore. You don't have to write those stupid sentences. Mm. He closed his eyes as if in prayer. And then he answered finally. (laughs) Now, see, I, I agree with that in theory, but then I listened to one of my interview tapes and there is just a mass of stuff on there. And sometimes when you listen to it, you think, well, here's why this goes through the magazine writing food processor, because it really is better in print, but you were able to harvest enough moments out of all this audio, you think, to make it worth doing in, in audio form. I'll tell you part of the reason why I did this story in audio form. I've got a cartilage problem with my thumb and I'm developing arthritis in my thumb and it's hard to write notes anymore. So I just left my iPhone on. And when I would go back and play my, my iPhone, I, the tape on my iPhone, I, Realized I had this great stuff going on in the background. Trains coming by a block away. Uh, some, you know, the sound of doors opening and closing. Engines starting. Driving to see things. Stuff that I would necessarily wouldn't tape when I'm doing a, doing a regular print story. And it was all there. You mentioned some of the characters we're going to meet in this podcast. The richest guy in town. Local newspaper editor. A person you call a globe-trotting private investigator. So what is the Skip Hollinsworth trick to presenting characters like those without it sounding like a really, really bad pulp novel? Or what's that series where the Jessica, where she finds out the murder in a small town every week? (laughs) Murder she wrote? Murder she wrote. (laughs) I felt like that's what I was doing. I have no secrets. You You just realize that the attention span of your audience is now so short 
And if you write any lengthy introduction to a character, instead of leap, instead of throwing your reader into the scene, then you're going to lose the reader. You know, you want to jump from scene to scene to keep a story going because otherwise readers are going to get, are going to jump away. We're going to get rid of your story. If you have those Lincoln, Lincoln log cabin paragraphs about where they grew up, what they were like in high school, you just jump to the scene and then you weave it in. We talked about what people in small towns think of podcasts. What did they think of Texas monthly? Is it wow. A national magazine award-winning magazine or is it oh that's that old liberal rag down in liberal austin uh i think it's both but i also think they enjoy getting the attention and i have to tell you i enjoyed getting the attention because people in small towns still love texas monthly in a way that people in big cities don't Mm. and there's texas monthly still sort of resonates with them and um it's like, you know, all my friends that live in cities don't, don't they go, you still write for Texas Monthly? I'm going, thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> now, do you whip out your Texas cred? Do you say, you know, I, I grew up in Wichita Falls. Do you use that when you're reporting a story like this? No, you do the, I do the exact opposite. I think what you need to do is um, uh, ask, begin a lot of questions with, I hate to be the stupid city boy. Mm. I hate to be the stupid city boy, but what is Deer Shed? There's a critical scene that comes in the podcast much later on down the road in a few weeks where a sheriff's deputy is hunting for Deer Shed. And when I'm told that story, I just stop the person and I say, I am so sorry, but what is Deer Shed? Well, that's the antlers that are shed by a male deer that lots of people in the country pick up and turn into deer knives or deer chandeliers and sell them on the sides of highways. So that's what you do is you act, you do, you know, the other question I always ask is, I know I don't understand a lot of this, but would you help me understand what's happening right here? And people want to help. Don't act like you know anything, which I never do anyway. (laughs) Let's talk about your career for a second. You get to Texas Monthly in 1989 after working for several years in newspapers. What was the allure of working for that magazine for you? Oh, in college, the publisher and the owner of the magazine, Mike Levy, uh, when I was in college, he was so, he loved his new magazine so much that he produced a coffee table. The first five years that magazine was in business, he wrote, he produced a coffee table book called The Best of Texas Monthly. The first five years of Texas Monthly, he already had a coffee table book out of it. <laughs> and if, when you open the flyleaf on that front, on those front two pages, all the writers who had written for the magazine had signed their names. So there was Larry King, Prudence McIntosh, all the old greats, Jan Reed, Steve Harrigan, uh, on and on and on. And I saw this one little space that was white space that was open. And I took out my pen. I was a sophomore in college and I wrote, and autographed Skip Hollinsworth because that's what I wanted to do even back then. There was some editorial turbulence, shall we say, at Texas Monthly after the magazine was sold in 2016. How did that affect your life? There was no editorial turbulence. Oh, Skip. I read the I read the Columbia Journalism Review. Come on now. There's no editorial turbulence in my life, Mr. Curtis. I don't <laughs> have editorial turbulence. I just have the same old problem of getting stories in before deadline. 
This is the advantage of living in Dallas. You just avoid everything, right? You're just you're you're just keeping your nose to the grindstone. My career is nothing but a life of avoidance. <laughs> now, I don't want people to think you just write true crime because I think I've got an issue of Texas Monthly with your Leanne Rhymes cover story on it here somewhere. I'm an excellent profiler of country music stars. I just wish people would celebrate that part of my career more. <laughs> what is it about crime that attracts you as a subject? Well, because it plays out as a three-act structure. You know where the story is going to end. And so you can keep your readers jumping to the three act to the third act. Or you can keep your readers guessing what's going to happen next. There's a kind of momentum that builds in a crime story. And, you know, when people cross that invisible line from being normal to committing a crime, it's always interesting to try to figure out why they did what they did. Uh, but the thing about Tom Brown's body is, you know, there's an, even another investigation going on as we're putting out these podcasts. So it's not like you can Google up the story and find out what the last act is. It's coming. And we'll see if it comes while the podcast is still going on. That's got to be exciting for you as a writer, because I think sometimes, you know, you do a great you do a magazine story and you, you get it all. But then there's another act or there's an addendum. So now, essentially, the addendum is part of the larger story, is it not? That's a really complicated question coming from you, Brian. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll rewrite. Give me, get me rewrite here, Skip. Ah, that was that was way over my pay grade. <laughs> there is a lot of true crime in the media universe, Skip. You mentioned serial. It has many, many clones. Do you ever worry there's too much true crime? Uh, no, because I don't really read that much true crime to begin with. I just read my own stories. Oh, that's not true. That's not true. I think, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of schlocky stuff that's written, but, um, you know, it, it finds its audience or it doesn't find its audience. I still think you can write a true crime story that is thrilling and insightful and maybe a little scary, but also, um, gives you a chance to explore the human condition. Oh, there, I just used a phrase that Brian Curtis would use, the human condition. Oh, <laughs> how dare you? How dare you? Let me leave you with this. Are there, is there a list of things you don't want to do in a true crime story? Things you want to avoid? The body was found, the opening sentence, the body was found under a tree. The... Um, the sheriff sticking his the sheriff sticking his thumbs in the in the little loops of his belt and leaning forward and spitting out tobacco juice. Mm -hmm. A lot of cliches you can, as he stares at the body. There's a lot of cliches you can jump into, and I've jumped into every single one of them. <laughs> you can read the first installment of Tom Brown's Body, which is cliche free, so far as I know, right now via Texas Monthly as both an article and a podcast. The next chapter, chapter two is out on October 6th. Skip Hollinsworth, thank you so much for coming on the Press Box. Thank you, Mr. Curtis. All right, it's time for David Shoemaker. Guest is a strain pun headline. Woo-woo. David, we got to shout out another listener here. His name is J. Scott Sewell. I am not making this up. J. Scott Sewell went through every edition of David Shoemaker. Guest is a strain pun headline. and laid out whether you correctly guessed the headline or incorrectly guessed the headline. My God. And okay. I know he did this because he sent me a spreadsheet. <laughs> was it that not only was it, has was it Google David, Sheets or Excel? 
It's a, it's a Google. It's a it's, right. it's a Google spreadsheet. He has it here, and it not only has whether David guessed or correctly or incorrectly, but it has the name of the headline. So I know he listened to every single one. All right. Now he had to make some judgment calls. If I had to give you a lot of help, yeah, he counted that as a loss. If I give sure. you a little help, I think he counted that as a victory. Okay, that's fair. Da- your one loss record, David, is fifty eight and sixty six overall. You are well, not maybe, making maybe, the NBA maybe playoffs. You, Maybe yeah, I feel like he's judging a little bit too hardly. <laughs> if you were in the Eastern Conference, maybe you'd make the NBA playoffs, actually. <laughs> yeah. But it turns out since June, you are 17 and 10. Oh, I do feel like I've been kind of on a roll lately. I think so, too. He says I 17, think David- se- 17 out of 27 is a that's like an all star level shooting percentage or at least three point shooting percentage. Right. Absolutely. He says, Great. I think David may have started juicing. He's got kind of a Biden-style <laughs> conspiracy theory for you here. All right. Anyway, uh, thanks to J. Scott Soul. Incredible work. Mm-hmm. Uh, we appreciate it. This week's headline, David, comes from Gina Chin. It's from The okay. Guardian. I'm just going to read you the uh, lead of the story here it's from earlier this month. A respected French philosopher has publicly disowned his equally famous philosopher son, not for stealing his girlfriend, but for writing a book he claims has left him heartbroken and loved ones drowning in a sea of ingratitude. Okay? French philosopher disowned son for writing a book. Wait, that has this, is a, this is a thing that actually happened? This is a thing that actually happened. So, okay. A famous... <laughs> fr- yeah. we, don't usually do, we don't usually do fiction stories here on David Shoemaker Guesses a Train Pun Headline. Um, a living... So it's a... Li- it's not like... like like Sartre. I mean, it's, it is a living philosopher. This is a living philosopher and the sun is also alive. Um, um, like every philosopher is French, right? I mean, I don't, I'm trying to think of who's. <laughs> yes. Every philosopher is French. Um, but who, who's a living French philosopher? Why can't I think well, of a living French philosopher? Let's not get too hung up on the philosopher here. Let's think of, Let's think of something about fathers, maybe. Oh, like Oedipus? Is it, um, is it, uh, wait, so wait, he, Here we what, go. what happened? Now we have to go back. Um, Here we uh, go. J. Scott Sewell, get your counter ready. Uh, wait, can you repeat the question? Can you use it in the form of a sentence? <laughs> sure. A respected French philosopher has publicly disowned his equally famous philosopher's son, dot, 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 for writing a book he claims has left him heartbroken. Uh, Oedipus Hex. Uh, mm, getting Oedipus, close. Oedipus, Oedipus, um, uh, Oedipal, uh, Oedipus Complex. Oedipus. Uh, Oedipus. Um, Oedipus. Oedipus. Um, Oedipus, I'm sorry, sir. I can't have get have to it. call time on this one. Oedipus Vex is the answer. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Oedipus Vex. David folks has dropped to 58 and 67 in the standing. Oh, I'm going to take this up with the judges. I'm not Uh-oh. sure about that. The Nets just slipped into the playoffs ahead of him. He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Researched by Chris Albeda. Production magic by Erica Cervantes. Next week's schedule, David and I will be here at our regular time on Monday with the New Yorker's Jeffrey Tubin, who's going to talk about Donald Trump's investigations. Then we're back Wednesday night after the vice presidential debate between Pence and Harris with another live reaction show. It will be... An obesely immoral edition of the Box. See you then, David. See you later, Brian. <laughs>